I love the season of Advent because it calls us out into different practices. It makes us a little bit more intentional, uh, especially when we gather corporately. We've done some call and response. We got to watch uh, my good friends, the Johns, like candles. Garrett awkwardly moves the mic stand. It's all new traditions during the season of Advent. Um, <laughs> it always has that feel of like a Christmas pageant, you know? Like my wife was making sure to document for the Johns this nice picture. And so she's like kind of awkwardly just like running around making sure she gets the right picture. But because we are in this season where we're being a bit more intentional, and as the Johns reminded us this morning, that our church tradition wants us to focus on this idea of peace, I thought it would be a wonderful way to start and to prepare our hearts to talk about peace through a practice that was actually instituted by Jesus and was carried through that Paul would write in his letters and that the early church adopted. And right now, thousands of churches throughout the world are doing it. And this is a sociable group, you all. So I know that uh, this will not fall on deaf ears, but it's called Passing the Peace. Maybe you've been a part of a tradition that's done that before, maybe you never have. Um, but it's simply, we're going to rise in just a moment. I'm going to read our gospel text, and then we're going to take just a few moments to greet those around us, not as a, hey, how are you, but a passing the peace. And it's simply either peace or it's the peace of Christ be with you. It's a little antiquated feeling maybe, but I think it's an important way for us to start. So would you please stand? If you'd like, the text is going to be above me. It's Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. I'm going to read this, and then we'll have a second to pass the peace. Feel free to move and roam. I'll watch the time, and we'll come together in a moment. The Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered, this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the end. It's the word of God. Let's pass the peace. Okay, go ahead and find your seats.
There's a movie that I absolutely love. It's an animated film uh, from the early 2000s. It's called The Iron Giant. Maybe you've heard of it. There's a picture of the main two characters. It's about a young boy in the 50s at the height of the Cold War who uh, discovers a giant robot from outer space. And it is a wonderful movie. It's uh, one of the few animated movies that's still hand-drawn. And if you haven't seen it, I, I really encourage you to watch it. And there's this particular scene that I was thinking about when I was considering uh, peace. And it's this, the young boy named Hogarth, amazing name. Hogarth is hanging out with the Iron Giant, and they've spent all day together. And Hogarth's role has really been in teaching the Iron Giant about what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's evil. And he primarily does this through the sacred text of Superman comics. And it's actually low-key the best Superman movie ever made because it's really not about him. It's about his character and his attributes. And they spend this wonderful day together. They're in Maine, and they're in the woods. And they're just enjoying the peace and tranquility of a, uh, a summer afternoon, or a winter afternoon. And they spot a deer that's in kind of an enclosure, and it's grazing. The Iron Giant's never really seen something like this. And so he's peering in, and they're just, they're soaking in the goodness of this moment. And then horrifically, that peace is disrupted through a gunshot. And the buck falls and dies, and the Iron Giant is enraged. He cannot imagine why this scene of peace and tranquility would be so thoroughly uh, taken away. And so he chases after the hunters and he bends their guns and he comes back and he tries to grapple with this understanding of why what was once this beautiful, tranquil, good thing has now been completely and utterly desecrated. What's even more tragic though to me is Hogarth is probably like 10, I can't remember his exact age, but he's way quicker to accept it. He's not enraged. He's upset, but he's not enraged. I wonder why that is. This morning, I want us to consider peace, specifically what the Bible has to say about peace. How Jesus is the fullness of it and how we can live a life of peace. So I'm going to ask uh, the Luke 2, 1 through 7 be put back up on the screen. And what I want you to see right now is that this is actually Luke inserting a subtle understanding of what the world view of peace was at that time. It's, it's extremely subtle, but uh, his readers would have picked up on it. And it comes in the first uh, verse. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. So Caesar Augustus, he's probably who you think of when you think about the Roman Empire. He is the nephew of Julius Caesar. He takes over. A huge civil war battles ensue. He comes out on top. He ends the Republic of Rome and becomes the full emperor and expands the Roman Empire to the heights and the glories that we see. And what we saw, it, it, history tells us, is that Augustus was considered a bringer of peace because he did so with the sword. He would go into these areas, he would bring them other, under Roman occupation, sometimes without conflict, but a lot of times with conflict, and then that area would be subjugated to the Roman Empire. 
Now, just because it's an occupying force doesn't mean there aren't some benefits, which would be stability. You're a part of a Roman empire, and you were able to engage in um, the roads and the plumbing and just everything that the Roman empire brought to your town. You just had to lose all the things that you were accustomed to. But Augustus was peace. And we see peace, we can really kind of draw that out in how we would describe peace today. If you look at a definition for peace now, it's really the absence of conflict. That's what we would consider peace in our time. But the Bible actually paints a different picture of what peace is. You've probably heard this term before, but in the Old Testament in Hebrew, it would be shalom. And then picking up in the New Testament, it would be erene. And I practice that a lot. <laughs> erene. They both mean, mean peace, but it's important to think about them outside of what we would commonly define as the word peace. Because really, instead of an absence of conflict, what shalom and erene are saying is pointing to probably the most basic way would be whole or complete. We uh, see this in uh, the passage in Job. It's applied throughout all over the place, but we see it in Job 5, 24. You shall know that your tent is at shalom, and you shall inspect your fold and miss nothing. It can be used in all kinds of different varieties. Sometimes it does relate to relations, relationships with others. Sometimes it's causing uh, restitution for maybe uh, breaking or doing something to harm another person's property. But shalom is a concept that is really broad. And the biblical writers knew that shalom was a complicated thing. It was built on a lot of different factors. And that when something was not right, your shalom was disrupted. It's the Christmas season, so none of you know what having a peace or tranquility being disrupted looks like at all, right? It's such a, I mean, it's such a graceful definition of peace because it hints towards something deeper, which is things are out of whack. And the Bible actually gives us the grace and the understanding to know that, yeah, and he wants to do something about that. But what is it going to do? So throughout the, uh, the Old Testament, the prophets and um, the writers of the Old Testament are pointing to a redeemer, a person who is going to actually bring about a fullness of peace. In Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, we actually get probably one of the best. This is, this is Christmas central right here. You can hear Linus in your voice, in your heads. I know you can. For to us, a child is born... To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Shalom. Of the increase of his government and of Shalom, there will be no end. Okay, so the Bible is already grappling with us, this idea that shalom is something that's delicate, that's something that can go out of whack, and we can go into times and periods of shalom, and we can be out of it. But yet in Isaiah, he's pointing to, actually, there is a redeemer coming, a person who is coming, who is going to be the prince of it. He's going to be a high royal figure. And that not only is he going to be an institutor of shalom, but it's a shalom that will be never-ending. 
This incompleteness, this disruption to our shalom, our peace, will somehow not be thwarted anymore. Our circumstances, our outside, our, our conflict that we constantly look to be absent from will be no more, and we will be whole and complete. But this passage in Isaiah forces a really clear and blunt question, and just because we're in Frisco, Texas, in kind of this Christian cultural um, bubble, we can't be afraid to poke out and say and address Isaiah's question head on, which is, why would the bringer of shalom be a person? And then even more so from our gospel reading, a baby. Well, the answer to this question is really easy to find in your Bible. You can go to the first page. It's in Genesis 1, and we've got to go back and look at what the biblical story is going to tell us. So if we go uh, to Genesis 1, we see that God has started to create. And not only does he create the heavens and the earth and everything that we see, he also creates an order, a sense of understanding, of a logical progression of things. This is not the chaos that existed without God, but it is the order that God brings in. And that's an important thing to understand as we go in. Because what we see is that we could say that just like Augustus, who brings peace through systems and orders and governments, God does that through nothing at all but his own self. Go with me into chapter 2, verses 20, or verse 25 in Genesis. God has created everything, and the high, high point of his creation is humanity. It's Adam and Eve. In Genesis 2, 25, we get this. And the man and his wife were both naked, and we're not ashamed. That is shalom writ large for us. There is complete peace and harmony between creation and humanity, between creator and humanity, and between the relationships between man and wife. It is the absolute picture of shalom, completeness, whole. And then, of course, we know that that is about to be horribly, horribly corrupted and disfigured. Just like the gunshot in the Iron Giant, it's appalling because it takes us back. It makes us wonder, why in the world would this beautiful, peaceful, whole, complete thing be so destroyed? And we see it in humanity listening to the agent of evil, the serpent. Just as an aside, think about that for a second. Adam and Eve have been perfectly in the shalom of their creator, Yahweh of God. And a serpent comes in to Eden. And they've been listening to the word of God. And then they ignore that and go to the word of the serpent. 
Could there be anything more tragic? And yet, just like Hogarth understanding a life senselessly taken and violence and what it does, we can understand that too, can't we? We can understand the yearning to listen to the sinful nature of our flesh versus the good and pure way that God calls to us through his word. But I have to say, the way that you look at the fall makes everything so much more important to the incarnation. Because I was someone who, for a lot of my life, would look at the incarnation, would look at the fall, and say, okay, humanity made a mistake. They trusted in something other than what God had called. They made a mistake. They transgressed. Or, excuse me, they... um, They just made a simple mistake. But that's not the case because that's not very satisfying because it really brings us to a question, which is if God is so good and so great and so loving and humanity makes this mistake, then why couldn't Adam and Eve simply repented and gotten back into Eden, back into the shalom with their creator? What was so wrong about what they did? I mean, we all make mistakes. That's the way I lived my life for a really long time. I thought that that, you know, wrestling with it, it's like God is good, but also this doesn't seem like that big of a deal. And it wasn't until I read uh, this, this book, it's a collection of letters written from, gosh, I think it's around the 300s, and we still use it today. Um, I've got a copy right here I'm going to be reading from it in a second. Um, let me tell you, I'm hitting you with good names today. Any expectant mothers out there who are having boys, I got two for you. You got Hogarth, and now you got Athanasius. You're welcome. Um, St. <laughs> Athanasius wrote this uh, collection of letters that have been bound together. It's called On the Incarnation. And Athanasius drives to a central point in helping me understand, and I hope that it's something that helps you understand the nature of the fall, and how it relates to the incarnation, which is this. It wasn't simply uh, something that it was a mistake or that it was something that couldn't... um, This wasn't a trespass. This was a transgression. This was a corrupting. Athanasius brilliantly lays out that in Eden, in our shalom with God, we are incorruptible beings. We were incorrupted. We were perfectly in the presence, naked and unashamed. And then the transgression, as he would call it, happened. It wasn't just that we made a mistake. It wasn't that humanity chose to do right in their own eye, although it was. It was that something fundamentally broke. It was stained. It was toxic. It was rendered something that was incorruptible to corruptible. And this posed a huge problem for us. We are forever then at war with God because we have become something different. What we did was that instead of being incorruptible, instead of being peaceful, we traded it for corruption. And really what I would say as we live it out today is we traded peace for anxiety. 
a broken mind, a broken nature in which we are never present. We are never able to be truly known. And we're constantly thinking about what's coming next. Constantly trying to be the master of our own uh, lives. There is no peace. Just anxiety. Merry Christmas. Um, (laughs) So what we see here is that, of course, repentance wouldn't be enough for a transgression. And Athanasius does a great job of giving us two clear reasons for why. The first reason would be, this invalidates the character of God. If God were to just purely accept a repentance from Adam and Eve, they would go against the good, ordered creation that he had made. Remember, friends, we were not made to be this. And so in this form, in this corrupted form, if we offered a repentance, even our very best repentance, Just because of our contaminated nature, it's going to be rejected by God because of his goodness, his holiness, cannot be around something corrupted. Man, this was something that I struggled with a lot because I am a type A, high achiever, want to work hard, and then I'm hearing, I'm becoming a Christian, I'm hearing this thing of like, your your works are never going to be good enough. And I was like, I'm pretty good at my works. I think God will honor the effort here, you know, like... I think I'm going to get graded on a curve here. And that's, that is the horrible thing about this corruption because it's completely bent me, as Martin Luther would say, it's bended me inward to seeing just myself. Why wouldn't I be good enough for God? Well, it's not that he's not seeing me. He just is seeing the corrupted version of me. This is a huge challenge, and it makes it most clear to us for why <clears throat> none of our works are going to amount to us being able to move out of this corrupted form. And like I said earlier, the second point that Athanasius makes is this. This was not transgression, or this was transgression, not trespass. Because surely... And God's goodness and his character, if it were trespass, repentance would be absolutely enough. I think I've beat this horse to death, but I just want to make it clear because for me, and maybe some of you are out there are dealing with the same thing, that was a huge, huge stumbling block for me. But thankfully, we're talking about peace. We're in the season of hope. Of Advent. And so while we can reckon with our corruption, we can also start to meditate and be transformed by what this season is about, which is the person of Jesus, which we could easily call the person of Shalom. The incarnation of Jesus is a difficult one. <laughs> Uh, I know because I've spent a week banging my head against the wall trying to make it palatable, and I'm not even sure I'm succeeding right now. But if you could, can you go to 2 Corinthians 5.21? Don't feel it. We're going to be bouncing around, so, you know, don't exhaust your fingers. Um, This comes from 2 Corinthians. This is Paul writing, and he says this, For our sake he made him to be sin 
who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I just wanna break this down really quickly. For our sake, God is considering us. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. Flip that. We're talking about the word of God, a perfect being, never corrupted, being born incarnate and adding to himself a new nature. So he is the nature of perfection deity, and then he's clothing himself, adding to himself a second nature, giving us the idea of Jesus is fully God and he's fully man. We've got a problem because the problem is that we are corrupted and we need to be brought back into a new state. I'm going to read from my pal Athanasius because I think this is where it really drives home the point of the incarnation, the need for this. And it comes here. Thus, taking a body like our own, because all our bodies were liable to the corruption of death, he surrendered his body to death in place of all and ordered it and offered it to the Father. What we see in Jesus is because he is both fully God and fully man, he is entering into a broken world a broken world that's filled with corruption. However, he has not been corrupted by it. He's walking amongst us. He um, was able to teach and he was tempted. And yet the curse, the stain, the corruption that had been put upon us was never impacted onto him. And so he was able to go and offer his body as a perfect sacrifice to God to take upon all the sin of the world and leave it on the cross. A great example of this that I'd modernized a little bit that Athanasius talks about is when we think about Jesus becoming a person, we can think about it like this. Imagine if the President of the United States walked through our church. What happens? Immediately, this becomes the safest place you could be. It is filled with secret service agents and military personnel. There are helicopters probably above us making watch. The invisible flight patterns of our nation would be altered because no plane can fly in the vicinity of where the president is. Both the visible and the invisible become forever changed for this time. Athanasius says, you know, um, he's using king as an example. And he says, when a king comes and dwells in a house, the whole city is honored and enemies and robbers cease to molest it. Sin has no ability to come onto the body of Christ because he, it never had a hold on him to begin with. But eventually, the king or the president leave, and that protection and that security leave with him. And we're forced back into the place that we're in right now. But it's in Christ that we see that peace, that shalom was fully found in him. 
because he, he took it on for us. You know, I heard a, a friend of mine who's a priest up in Chicago, he and I both have children roughly the same age, and we were talking about how do you explain the Trinity to a three-year-old? And he's like, it's kind of the easiest and the most complex thing to teach. It's like, it's three persons. They're all equal. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And sometimes a three-year-old would be like, great, that's all I needed to know. And sometimes they're like going to ask you uncomfortable questions where a five-minute car ride turns into like an hour and a half of you white-knuckling because you're not sure what else to say. This is one of those moments. I, I feel this need to constantly press in about what did Jesus do through his life and through his death? But we all know he took upon the sin. He was a perfect sacrifice. And because it was pleasing, because he's that duality of perfect man and perfect God, his corrupted body was able to be laid into the tomb and death was able to stick upon it and to find its full final resting place in the tomb. And we were able to find a brand new place, a brand new life in his body. So I want to move finally to this. And it's this question of, okay, so how do I live in this peace? I understand that a cosmic reordering has taken place through what Jesus did in his incarnation and in his death on the cross. But how does that impact me right now? How do I live and engage in this life of shalom? Well, first of all, you have to follow him. We look at it, but what's beautiful about that following is if we look at Matthew 28, verse 20, the very end, his last words in the gospel of Matthew, we see this. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Our God does not abandon us. He stays with us. And so we have to follow along with him because he is with us. But I think, I think we kind of know that. So how are we being transformed? What does it actually look like? Okay, so I've given my life over to Christ. I've walked in his ways. I'm going to church. I'm a Christian. I'm going through some kind of formation. What is the fruit that I should be expected to see in this life with Christ? And I think Ephesians 2, 13 through 18 um, summarizes it very nicely. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Your corrupted self has been made new again. It went from incorruptible to corrupted to now because of what Jesus did on the cross, it is back to a place of incorruption. Because of what he did on the cross, he brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, our erene who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And then we've got the rest. I'll keep that up there. 
isn't that, does that tug at you at all? Does that hit your heart? I mean, if we're all being honest, we know our lowest points and we're far away from God. And yet because of what Christ did on the cross, he draws us back near into that shalom. So in a cosmic reordering of everything, we are now made right with God. How does that impact your life? I'll tell you. That peace that we traded for anxiety comes back. We're able to engage knowing that the creator of the universe, the creator of Mars and sea turtles and you and me, has brought us fully back into his good presence. If that doesn't impact how you're walking and how you're carrying yourself and how you're approaching others, I don't know what else will because it's so much better than walking in anxiety. It's so much better than walking in brokenness. It's so much better than anything. And it's not in its perfect form yet, but it is so good to be in the peaceful presence of God. And through that vertical understanding that we've been reconciled with God, we're able to be reconciled with others. We can walk into any familial situation, any friend situation, any work situation where there might have been corruption. There might have been hostility. There might have been (coughs) a misunderstanding. There might be something that has so thoroughly tainted the relationship that you have with a person or with a place. And because God is with us as he promises us, because we're unified in him, because we're abiding in him. If we go to John 15, we are given the Holy Spirit and we are able to walk in to this corrupted, damaged world knowing that the incorruptible one is with us and walking with us. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, we're able to break down those walls. How many of you long to see reconciliation with one another? How many of you long to be in that perfect understanding of peace? How many of you long for what we did earlier, passing the peace, to not just be this exercise and maybe like a church seventh inning stretch and something that is just kind of a nice way to say hello to others, recreating the lobby into the worship space? How many of us long for the opportunity to look at one another and say the peace, the shalom of Christ, the wholeness of Christ, the completeness of Christ be with you and they return it back to you? I long for that. I experience it right now and it's so great. It gives me hope to know that there is peace Maybe a dis- not distorted, but maybe not a fully realized peace right now. Because when we walk out these doors, it is radios blaring. It is the realities of the world creeping back in and trying to steal that peace. The robbers are going to try and break into our home. But know this. Because we abide in Christ, because we share in the shalom of Christ. When he says, my peace I have to give to you, he's offering himself and we take that on. No robber can touch you, not eternally. No corruption 
can come back in. You are a new thing. And that is the wonderful peace that we get to share in. I want to close with this, and I'll uh, invite Garrett and everyone back up here. I want to close with this. Um, if we go back to uh, the Luke passage, Luke 1, 2, 1 through 7, uh, there's something that struck out, stuck out to me, and it'll be the uh, second slide. And it's probably because I have so many young children, and it's this in the last verse. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. I have done my fair share of swaddling over the last couple of years. And I love that Luke includes that because what swaddling is, it is taking a fussy, upset, feeling out of control newborn and kind of aggressively pinning their arms to their side and wrapping them up. And Mary does that upon birth, and it's good for them. It stretches them out, makes sure that they're not scrunched in. It's a form of health. It also restores some semblance of peace, even for just a moment. Because that newborn is able to feel secure and peaceful. And that's what Jesus was. Don't fall into the trap of this thinking that Jesus wasn't in need of being comforted as an infant. It's a profound thought. He needed the peace of his parents in that moment. His arms were bound to him by his side. And he would grow up. And he would sleep. And he would eat and he would scratch his knees, and he would make friends, and he would lose friends. He would go and move into his career of preaching and teaching. And then at the end of his life, instead instead of peace being brought about for his arms being pinned to his sides, his arms would be extended. His hands would be pierced. And through a violent, horrible day, a new peace was brought about for me and for you. I want to give us a few minutes to reflect, a few moments really, to reflect on this, on the peace that God promises with himself and with us. And then we're going to go into, frankly, one of the most beautiful and strange traditions we have as Christians this table. This table where we'll get to fully understand and participate in peace. So take this time to reflect. It'll be quiet. And that peace will eventually be broken. But know that you were brought into the fullness, the shalom of God, which never ends. Please take this time.